what I found very interesting is June Steenkamp has finally taken the time to come back to court again. And obviously we understand that this is a very difficult situation for her to be faced with. Uh, that is why I think it's understandable that she's been staying away from court largely. But today she walked out after those. And I mean, none of these photos were photos of Riva herself, but much rather of the setting, the, the actual what one can only refer to as the crime scene. And, um, you know, the, those images of blood spatter, those images of blood smears, the images of the door being broken through, all those things seriously having an effect on her. And she left. She left the courtroom again. What is going through her mind at the moment? Uh, Gershwin, I think she, she is seriously traumatized. Mm. And uh, because, uh, you know, if, if, I, if, if I can just define a trauma for you, sure. a trauma is when you're exposed to a situation that 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 is lethal or mm. very very damaging or potentially lethal potentially damaging that is beyond the normal experience of a normal person mm-hmm. in other words when whenever you are exposed to anything that is outside of the realm of normal human experience and is potentially or in reality deadly uh, or or extremely damaging it 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 causes a reaction in you that is that is uh, firstly perceived as an inability to adjust to it. In other words, you cannot adjust uh, to that situation. And they used to call it traumatic stress reaction. These days they call it uh, uh, adjustment reaction with stress. In other words, you cannot adjust to it. You cannot handle it. You cannot work it through. It just sits there and it incapacitates you very, very severely to the extent, and I can understand why Reva's mother uh, stayed away because mm. she, she just wouldn't be able to manage that, especially since it is the blood of her daughter. The door was broken down to get to her dying daughter. Uh, that is just more than anybody can manage. Doctor, and that for me, the, the, it must be very difficult for Riva's mum under the uh, under these circumstances because now she's actually seeing the scene, and I'm sure there's some level of imagination, for lack of a better term, going into this where. She can probably imagine what her daughter had gone through. She can probably imagine where her daughter was lying at the time of her death. She, she's probably going through quite a bit. How much of your own imagination? Um, because there's always that level of empathy one gives a, a, a victim or someone that has, has suffered uh, you know, some type of an ill. There's always that level whereby you can, where we, we even use it in our own language where we say, imagine you went through that. Is that what is also burdening um, Riva's mother in this instance? Excellent point. A very, very good point. Uh, and thank you for bringing it up because I, I should have. Um, oftentimes, we are traumatized more by what we don't see, but by what we think what could have happened or what we think actually happened. In other words, we, we take from our memory banks all the worst possible examples mm-hmm. of terrible uh, death, and we put it together as a possible uh, scenario for what had happened. So in other words, the actual stressful reaction uh, in, in the late Reva's mother is probably uh, as, at least as strong as what actually happened, but probably a far lot stronger than what, than what actually happened because of the uh, imagination bringing Everything in the memory that she had ever heard of or read of or saw or, or were exposed to or told uh, that, that that could and would happen in, in, in situations like that. And even you and I, if we now think of the absolute terror mm. that that girl went
went through. I mean, it, it would even be traumatizing for you and I to sit and imagine what, what happened in that last few minutes uh, before she died. It would traumatize us as well. Indeed. And, of course, uh, uh, Professor, my opinion, the rest of the public on whether June Steenkamp should be going to court or not going to court doesn't really matter in this instance. However, what is the motivation for anyone, her, her as a parent, her as the mother, going to court on a regular basis to hear what had actually happened? Is it in search of some level of closure? And even if that is the case, surely this must be a very traumatic, a very difficult thing to go through on a regular basis. Of course, what you're listening to is how your daughter has actually died. There are very important motivations here. The one is that she needs closure. Mm-hmm. And in order to have closure, she needs to see justice uh, take place. And justice must therefore happen and must be seen to happen. Mm. And she wants to observe the process of judges, of, of, of uh, uh, some form of retribution being uh, meted out to him. So that justice does happen, and she wants to see that, and it's necessary that she does in in in, in order for her to 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 come to closure with with the particular situation. Otherwise, she will really never have closure because she also needed to see Oscar in person. She needed to look him in the eye mm. in, in in order for her to eventually work this through. But she will definitely need help to work through it, irrespective of how strong a lady she might be. And uh, clearly very difficult for her to go through this whole process. But now on that very issue, I mean, she had a very strong reaction uh, to the photographs being shown in court today of the crime scene. Um, Oscar himself also seemingly having some type of reaction because, and this is just purely my observation from watching the proceedings, it seemed that every single time, especially if it was a particularly graphic photo, especially if it was a photo that outlined, that showed a lot of blood um, of that toilet it seemed that Oscar couldn't really keep his eye on the, on, the, on the screens displaying those photos. He had his eyes down regularly. He would rather, um, you know, be working through this notebook that he has been ke- keeping with him all along. What is going on with him? What is going through his mind every single time those images seem to be flashing? And um, he can't seem to be keeping his eyes on them. I think what's going through his mind is that he, he, he cannot uh, conceive that he did that. Uh, you know, and, and this has nothing to do with guilt or innocence. This just has the normal human reaction of, look what I did. This was me who caused that. And he, and he, and he cannot face it. Nobody will be able, uh, a normal human being won't be, won't be able to say, I did that. That's why he had to turn his eyes away. Uh, that's why he had the, the, uh, the uh, uh, extremely strong physiological reaction of, of, of actually uh, retching and, and, and vomiting. And uh, because the uh, a view of that uh, is just too horrible. And if you add to it, uh, yeah. guilty or not guilty, that he did it. He has to take responsibility for it. That is the, that is the terrible thing. And that would, uh, I think that those are scenes that would haunt him for the rest of his life. Prof, you, you and I have spoken quite a bit about how, uh, you know, memory actually works and that there's certain stimulus and, and, and that the different parts of the brain come into play in storing memory, um, like this big hard drive. And then afterwards you go and access that memory, pull it out and replay it. To what large extent, how large an extent does a visual stimulus play in sort of bringing back a memory, especially a very traumatic one? Because surely the events of the 14th of February 
guilty or innocent, would have been extremely traumatic for Oscar Pistorius. So how does that recurring, uh, you know, stimulus, visual stimulus affect him while he's sitting there? I mean, it's photos of, 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 of a broken door. It's photos of blood smears all over the bathroom. And now we're even going as far as the bedroom and even his own body. How big an effect is it having on him? A tremendous effect because the more uh, traumatic or intensely negative a stimulus situation is, the more it is classically conditioned uh, to one's physiological response, one's emotional response, and your thinking or uh, cognitive response. In other words, irrespective of what he does or what he takes, his body responds with massive amounts of adrenaline and noradrenaline being pumped through his body, sympathetic nervous system overload, his heart beats uh, 150, 160 uh, uh, times per, uh, per, per, per minute. His blood pressure would rise. Uh, he would feel dizzy. He would feel nauseous. He would feel like he wants to fall over. Then together with that comes the conditioned emotional response. And we can take his conditioned emotional response to be the equal of what the, uh, what the radiologist saw when he was praying to God to just bring her back to life mm. uh, when he was bending over her lifeless body. Uh, so that, those those emotions then wash through uh, uh, the physical reaction and the emotional reaction when he sees the pictures is exactly as strong as it was then. One does not habituate to it. And of course then comes the thinking of that is all my doing. Mm. I did that. I have to take responsibility. So he responds in, 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 in every uh, thinkable uh, human system to that, and uh, it, it, it is overwhelmed, absolutely overwhelmed. One last one for you, Prof. In terms of re-traumatizing, I mean, um, it's something that I have a particular interest in myself because I do understand that, for example, someone that has been a victim of some form of gender violence, especially um, in the horrible instance of rape, they get re-traumatized every single time they have to relive this process whether it be through a courtroom hearing, sometimes when it is in the work or the school environment, they have to still go through disciplinary processes as well, and they have to give a testimony under those circumstances. Oscar is the accused in this case. Every single day that has passed thus far, different people have been giving different versions of what he has been getting up to. Um, there's been a huge focus for the last three days on the forensic evidence that is obviously at play here through the use of photographs, through the use of um, expert witnesses giving a testimony. What is he going through in terms of his own trauma? How is you know is he being repeatedly traumatized? He, he's he, he's being repeatedly traumatized because every time he becomes aware of what happened, uh, he shows a stronger reaction both physiologically, emotionally, and 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 intellectually. But even more so if we uh, if if you think that every time he sees he is being re-traumatized and the trauma becomes more intensive. In other words, it becomes a relentless or, 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 or unrelenting traumatic exposure because we must bear in mind that the uh, every time he hears it, he, he does not hear the events uh, being being described in, 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 in any lesser way than it really was mm. because the uh, advocate for the prosecution will most certainly uh, present it very, very strongly and traumatized witnesses would present it very strongly as well. So it is relentless. He cannot escape it. He must face it. And it is that inability to escape that leads to a condition of what is known as uh, uh, learned helplessness. In other words, he's learned that he's helpless in, in this condition. So 
he, and, and he cannot habituate to it. So he's like a caged animal being constantly traumatized. It, it, this, is, this is very severe on him. I should say, Professor, this is uh, the beginning of the third week of this trial. I thought by now, you know, the psychology aspect of it would have been done and dusted, that there wouldn't be anything new and fresh to look into. But look there, you and I are sitting here and having a lengthy discussion about what both the mother is going through. I mean, Rivas Steenkamp's mother is going through as well as Oscar. And it's still very new. It's still very fresh. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much, Chris. It was great to be on your show. Great, thank you. There was, of course, uh, Professor Eddie Wolfe. He is a clinical psychologist giving us some insight into, um, you know, what is actually going on here psychologically for the various players in this uh, particular trial. And as you can hear, it can't be easy for anyone participating in this process, including Oscar himself. I mean, even if he had to be uh, guilty. Let's just imagine that for a second. Every single day for the next, for the, I don't know how many number of weeks he is going to sit there and he's going to have to look at these photographs and he's going to listen to various uh, versions of people mentioning over and over again what they believe had happened in that house on the 14th of February 2013. And that, I mean, yeah, 2013. And that cannot be an easy process whatsoever. It is traumatizing and he is most likely being re-traumatized on a day-to-day basis. Obviously not very easy for Riva's mother as well. As you heard today, she actually left. And as you heard, as Professor Eddie Wolf put it there, she needs this. She actually really needs to be part of the process. She needs to sit in that courtroom and actually listen to the processes and the procedures going on for the simple reason of trying to get to the bottom of this for her own closure. And that cannot, under any circumstances, be an easy process to be put through.